you can find it. No? Great, 822. I grabbed the wrong edition of the Bible. Right translation, wrong edition. So let's stand together, shall we, for the reading of God's word. This is Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You may be seated. Let's take a moment together and we'll reflect on God's word. So since uh, Paul's on vacation, I thought I'd pick a kind of uncontroversial passage uh, to talk about. No big questions, no big confusion anywhere here. (laughs) Okay, so every month on Communion Sundays which is usually the first Sunday of the month, but um, actually in August, we're going to be doing it the second Sunday of the month. Every, commun- every month on Communion Sundays, we as a church recite the Apostles' Creed. If you don't know what the Apostles' Creed is, it's this ancient statement of faith, and it's supposed to be the kind of uh, the bare minimum, like the mere Christianity, like the stuff that everybody from every denomination, every part of the church can agree on and has agreed on throughout history, right? And most of the stuff in the Creed is pretty straightforward. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the resurrection. All important things, crucial things. But there's this one line in the Apostles' Creed that for the longest time in my Christian life, as I would say it, I'd go, is that really like the rest of the stuff? Is that really part of the essentials? Is that that really part of the stuff that we all have to agree on? And here's what the line is. I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And apart from the Catholic part, because that word's kind of confusing, well, when we say it, Catholic is little c Catholic, which means universal or worldwide church. It doesn't mean the kind of the church connected to Rome. Uh, Apart from the little c Catholic thing, uh, we get more questions about that, about this one line. I think there's more confusion about that one line. What is this big C church that we're supposed to believe in, and why is it such an essential part of being a Christian? I think I said for a long time, and I think a lot of us might say, I believe in Jesus. Do I really need to believe in the church? And if I do, if I have to, what am I supposed to believe about it? 
Now, apparently quite a few Americans feel the same way because Barna, uh, the survey people. So, you know, when it says experts say people believe this, that's usually the Barna group. They do these religious surveys. They've created a new category uh, when they survey people about their religious beliefs. Already there was, hey, are you, would you say you're spiritual but not religious? That's like a big kind of popular category that people opt for. But now there's this new category that it says about 90% of people who have uh, believed the same things that the Orthodox Church throughout history has believed about uh, the Trinity and about the deity of Jesus and the bodily resurrection. About 89 or 90% of people say this, I love Jesus, but not the church. I'm committed to Jesus, but I'm not committed to the church. Okay, so without kind of trying to slam anyone that might say that because some of us might say that and I in my own life have said that at certain points I just want to ask thinking about what Christians have confessed throughout history thinking about what the Bible says can you do that can you be committed to Jesus without being committed to his bride the church is the church optional and if it is optional what do we lose if we opt out Okay, to help guide us this morning, we're going to turn to the first place the church is mentioned in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 16. So if you haven't already opened up your Bibles, it's on page nine something. There you go. (laughs) And just to lay some ground rules, when we speak about the church, I, I just want to be sure we're clear that we're talking about the same thing. This word church in the Bible, uh, kind of has two sides to it. You can imagine it like, I like to imagine it like a half moon cookie. You know, one of those black and white cookies. So it's one cookie, right? It's one thing, but it has a visible side and an invisible side. The invisible side is this kind of universal Catholic church. That's, that's the side that God sees. That's the side in heaven. That's the perfect side. That's, that's the true church that consists of everyone who God knows, whose God has called, who is really saved and who will continue and persevere and be with God in heaven. That's when the Bible talks about uh, the bride of Christ. It's talking about that people, the invisible church. And then there's this other side, this earthly side of, of the church word, and that's the visible church. And that consists, our confession says, of everyone in the world who professes the true religion. So... Not whoever, ever, whoever truly professes, but whoever professes in some kind of credible way that we could judge the true religion along with their children. That's what we believe. That's why we uh, baptized Bonnie and we, we, we made her part of the covenant community. We recognized her as part of this visible church community. Uh, the visible church is the part of the church that meets together every week on earth. Throughout the globe, the visible church isn't just confined to one ethnic group like it was in the Old Testament, uh, but it's this worldwide phenomenon, but it's a visible phenomenon that happens in real time and space with real people. And what I want us to see this morning is that because Jesus himself established the church, both sides of it, the whole cookie, uh, we cannot fully and faithfully love Jesus without loving his church also. And I have to confess, uh, this week, as I studied, as I looked at God's plan for the church, his design for the church, and his idea of what church means, it made me fall in love with her. It made me excited uh, about the church. It made me a believer in the church. And so that's my prayer, that it would do the same uh, for you. 
So let's look at the church as Jesus establishes and describes it. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 16, the church is the community who recognizes the king's identity, exercises the king's authority, and rests on the king's foundation. So first, the church recognizes the king's identity. The church is a community that's formed around a common confession, the recognition of Jesus to be who the scriptures say that he actually is. The fundamental action of the church, the thing that we're about in the world, and the thing that we're about when we're together, is speaking the truth about Jesus, declaring who he is, what he came to do, and how we're supposed to relate to him. Now, this recognition of Jesus that we're going to talk about by Peter is so foundational It's so important, it's so monumental, that it actually splits the Gospel of Matthew in half. It's this crucial kind of like turning point in the Gospel of Matthew, where after Peter makes this public confession of Jesus, some people call it the Great Confession, uh, after that Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem, he's moving towards crucifixion, he's moving towards um, the cross and his resurrection. So it's this important turning point. And Jesus is actually the one who starts the conversation. Uh, In verse 13, he asks his disciples, hey, who does everyone out there say that I am? Who does everyone out in the world say that I am? And uh, by the way, I think just the fact that he asked this question might be proof that Jesus was sinless. Because how many of us seriously ask other people, hey, what does everyone in the world really think about me? Have you noticed? I mean, that that takes a really secure person to ask that question. So Jesus is saying, okay, tell me, what do they actually think about me? Who do they say that the Son of Man is? And understandably, there's a lot of confusion. It's kind of a mixed bag. Most people think Jesus was a reincarnation somehow of this, one of this greatest hits figure from uh, Israel's past. Kind of like a reboot of a Disney cartoon that got turned into a live action movie. So I think Jesus is some kind of reincarnation or some kind of reboot. And it's true. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a priest. Jesus is a king like David. But we'll see that he's actually more than that. So they kind of have it half right in the culture. There's a lot of confusion, but Jesus isn't bothered by that. Uh, He's really focused on one thing. What do my people say about me? What do you say about me? What do my people think? Do they really know who I am? And Peter speaks up. He's the leader of the group. Most commentators think he was the oldest disciple. And he says something that is really fascinating and intensely theological, intensely scriptural. Peter says, you are the Christ. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. Now, this word Christ, it's not Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ. Um, It's actually a title. And this is the first time anyone says this title. This word Christ, which is actually kind of interchangeable with the word Messiah, uh, just means the anointed. And people who were anointed in Israel's history, in Jewish culture, people who were anointed were set apart for a special office, most often the office of king. So one way of talking about the king of Israel would be the anointed of Israel. So David was a Christ. David was a Messiah because he was an anointed, set-apart king. So when you hear the word Christ, I want you to think king. Jesus Christ 
means King Jesus, Jesus the King. But he doesn't just say Jesus is a king, a Christ. He says something even better. Jesus is the king, the Christ, the son of the living God. And those these are really, really important because he's not just saying Jesus is a king, one of many, but he is the king. He's not just a son of God and maybe some others will come too. No, he's the unique, one of a kind, divine king that is the son of the only living and true God. He's utterly unique. He is Israel's ultimate and final Christ, the ultimate, final, anointed Messiah and king. That's a big confession. Or if you want to fill Jesus' title out with even more descriptions, uh, you can take the name that Jesus gives himself in verse 13. This is one of his favorite descriptions of himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. Now, in some parts of the Bible, calling someone the Son of Man was a way of highlighting their human nature. So God would speak to Ezekiel and he'd say, Son of Man, you're a man, I'm God. Son of Man, go tell this people this thing. But there's another part of the Bible where it talks about the Son of Man. It's Daniel 7. And Daniel sees a picture of a human, a son of man, but he also has these divinely ordained kind of cosmic properties. Listen to this. This is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's who Jesus is. He's the one, he's the king with the everlasting kingdom, whose kingdom will not be destroyed. He's the once and for all king, the son of man and the son of the living, of God, the living God, who has come and will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's the answer the Bible gives. That's the answer the Bible gives. But Jesus asks Peter a different question. He says, Peter, who do you say that I am? Not who do the scriptures say the Son of Man is, but you've read the scriptures, you've seen me, you've seen the miracles, you've heard the testimony of scripture, you have your experience of me. What do you say? Do you recognize me to be the person that the Bible talks about as the Messiah, as the King? That's a monumental question for Peter. And that's an important question for all of us. Not what does someone else say Jesus is. Not what does the Bible say Jesus is. But you've read the Bible. You've heard what other people say. What do you think? That's the question that Bonnie's going to have to answer one day. And we're hoping, we're praying that she will say Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God. He's the unique son of God. And I believe in him. I recognize him. I see him for myself, not just because my mom and dad told me about him, not just because everyone in the church taught me about him, but I recognize him for myself. And I'm claiming him as my king. That's what we hope. Because her connection, her ongoing connection to this people, the church, is going to depend upon that recognition, upon that confession. Now, we're not expected to give a perfect answer, right, <laughs> to the question of who do we see Jesus as? Who, who, who do we say Jesus is? Because Peter didn't even have a perfect answer. He had a correct answer, but he had an incomplete answer. Because in verses 22 through 23, Jesus says, well, yeah, even though I know you're the Christ, I don't think you could be a crucified Christ. 
I don't think you could actually die. So even Peter was partially right. But he still was blessed. He still gave a true confession. But for us, I mean, we see the whole picture. Peter and the disciples didn't see the whole picture, which is why I believe Jesus said, hey, guys, don't actually tell anyone about me yet. Wait. Wait until you see the whole story. Wait until you have all the information you need so you can clearly communicate the truth about who I am. That's why Jesus says, kind of just press pause on that, Peter. But we have all the information. We have all the revelation that God will give us about who Jesus is. So what do we say? For us, the question of what do we say, who do we say Jesus is, that gets asked of us every day a thousand times. We speak about who we believe Jesus is through what we say, through what we do, through what we fear, through what we love, through how we treat our neighbors, through how we treat our family, through what we love. Who do you say Jesus is? In every situation we're in, at work, at home, gathered together at church or scattered, people are looking and they're asking, what does this person believe about this person, Jesus? Who is Jesus to them? Who is Jesus to Christ Community Church? Do they believe he's the king? And if so, what does that mean? Who do they actually believe the real king of the universe is? Praise the Lord. It's not me. Praise the Lord. It's not you. There is a king of the universe, and he is almighty. He's powerful. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Everything was created by him and is held together by him, and that is not you. So as a church, we come together and we're bound by this common confession that there is a king, that he is not us. His name is Jesus. And this king is calling us, inviting us to recognize him and to become part of his blessed and beloved people. So this community is centered around a common recognition of King Jesus. But even though we are not the king, we recognize Jesus is the king, we're just common everyday people that are called by the king, the church still gets to act kind of like a little king in the world because we're part of his royal family. In this passage, Jesus the king says that the church is not just going to recognize him, but they will represent him in the world because the true church in the world exercises the king's authority. Christ gets to share, Christ's church gets to share in Christ's royal authority and represent him on earth. And we can see this in the text in verse 19 where Jesus speaks about a set of keys. Now, if you're really close to someone... Uh, like, for instance, we have two sets of neighbors that live right near us. We have the Swings and the Coopers who both go to the church. We're really good friends of theirs. And you can tell that we're really good friends of theirs and they're really good friends of ours and we really trust each other. Why? We've got each other's keys. Okay, when the Swings moved to the neighborhood, they said, listen, our house, not everyone's going to get our keys, but you get our keys. So we trust you with our stuff. <laughs> We trust that what's ours is shared with you in some way. So thank you for sharing all your stuff with us, Tim and Tristan. But there's this recognition of a close connection because 
the keys have been handed over. And so Jesus' set of keys in verse 19 are called the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And who is given these keys? Well, the local church. Now, they're not just given to Peter uh, because Jesus says the exact same thing about the keys in Matthew 18. He's talking to all the disciples. Okay, so it's not just given to Peter, but Peter has the keys. Uh, He's one of several who have the keys. And it's not just uh, that the invisible church has the keys, right? The kind of universal, eternal, perfect church has the keys um, because the keys are expressed on earth. They're keys on earth that unlock something in heaven. And the keys in Matthew 18 are related to these real-life instances of church membership and church discipline. So the keys are about real-life experience in this world with real, discrete individuals. So what do these keys do? What authority do the keys give the local church? Well, in verse 19, it says that it's authority to bind and loose. Weird words, kind of confusing words. Uh, misunderstood words. These words don't actually have anything to do with ropes. These terms, binding and loosing, have to do with forbidding and permitting behaviors and beliefs. This is a word that the rabbis would use about binding and loosing certain things. Okay? So if something is bound, that means the door is closed, it's forbidden. If something is loose, that means it's permitted, the door is open. Okay? So the church local church, has authority to forbid and permit things. So how does the church use these? How do the keys actually work themselves out? How do they get expressed? This is what one um, commentator said. He said this, The keys are nothing else than this, the preaching of the pure, unfalsified word of the gospel. So the church is using the keys when they're speaking the true word of the gospel, when they're preaching the true word of the gospel. And whoever believes this gospel will be free of his sins and be saved. Whoever does not believe this will be condemned. That's the opening and shutting. That's the binding and loosing. That's the forbidding and permitting things. It's part of the teaching responsibility and ministry of the church. So when you listen to someone preach or teach, and they're preaching, teach, preaching and teaching the true word of God, they're using the keys And this is a solemn responsibility. (laughs) This is a responsibility that we want the church to take seriously because Jesus says that there's a connection between the earthly use of the keys and their effect in heaven. Now, it's not that uh, we do something on earth or I'll say something from this pulpit and then God says, oh, I better add that to the Bible. Better, Better change some stuff in heaven because of something someone said on earth. No, that's not it. What he's actually saying, and what what, what the the grammar actually says is, whatever you bind on earth will be caused to be bound in heaven, or will have already been bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will have already been bound in heaven. So he's saying that I'm going to uphold the teaching ministry of the church to keep the church, the true church, preaching the true word of God in people's life. So God is saying, I'm going to cause my church on earth to look like the church in heaven. And that's how actually you can tell where God's true church is. Are they speaking the words that God has given them? Do, does the teaching match up with the Bible? 
uh, in the Reformation, uh, John Calvin was kicked out of the city of Geneva. And uh, so one of the bishops in the Roman Catholic Church was like, you know, the shepherd's gone. Let me just sweep in and talk to some of the sheep. And so he wrote a letter to everyone in the city of Geneva. And he said, guys, you kicked Calvin out of town. I'm so glad. Welcome back to your mother, the Roman Catholic Church. And the city actually said, Calvin, will you write a letter to this knucklehead, please? And Calvin wrote a letter to the Bishop Sadaletto. You can look it up online. And this is what he said. We didn't leave the church. The city did not leave the true church. We've been in the true church. You left the church. You left it when you abandoned the word of God and you added the teachings of men to it. So we're trying to exercise the true keys. We're trying to match up with the word of God. You left the church. We didn't leave the church. So the keys are a sign of where the true church is. The key is also a sign to us that we don't belong to ourselves. And this is important. We have a little book uh, that our son likes to read. It's called The Dog Who Belonged to Himself. <laughs> Mr. Dog, the dog who belonged to himself. Um, and it's kind of a funny story about this dog who doesn't have any master, so he gets to do what he wants to do, and he gets to walk around, and, and then he meets a little boy who I think doesn't have any parents, and so the boy belongs to himself too, and they have an adventure together. It's a strange book, <laughs> but we love it. But here's the lie in the culture. Here's the lie that I think our hearts naturally want to believe. You can be a person who belongs to yourself. And that's actually the best way to live. God didn't create us to be a people that belong to ourselves. And and this ministry of the keys prove it. Because we don't bind ourselves and loose ourselves. We don't open the door to heaven for ourselves. Jesus says his church does that for us. And so for us, a test of whether or not we're really a part of the church. Not that you've just taken a membership class, which I highly recommend that you do this fall. We're having a membership class. Sign up and take it. Email Sarah at cccwnc.com. Not just that you're, you've made a profession of being a member of the church, but you're actually functioning and living as a member of the church. Is You hold up the keys to your life and say, are the keys being used in me and in my life? And the way we can see it is these kind of twin tests of, of admission and submission. Or maybe you call it the test of yes and no. So the first test, has someone in the church admitted you in? So have you been baptized? Have you, have you made a profession of faith that someone else has said, yes, I see you really are a Christian? And they've opened the door to you. They've said, believe in Jesus. And yes, I can see you do believe in Jesus. And yes, come, belong, and be here. And I'm going to encourage you. And I'm going I'm to say, you really, really are a Christian. Has someone opened the door for you? Not just physically out in the lobby, but has someone opened the door to God's people for you? Not, did you just kind of open the door for yourself and sneak in through the side? But has someone in the church, has someone in church leadership said, I see you're a Christian, and I'm welcoming you in. I believe, yes, you really are who you say you are. But then there's the test of submission. Not has anyone said yes to you, but has anyone ever said no to you? Have you ever let anyone in the church change your mind about something? Or 
Do you basically come to church? Do you basically come to Sunday school? Do you basically show up and say, I will agree as long as everyone just says exactly what I already thought. And nobody can change my mind. And I'll just say, I mean, if no one's ever said no to you, if you've never had your mind changed, if, never, if no one's ever loved you enough to correct you in the church, how can you be sure that you really belong to her? How can you be sure that you don't just belong to yourself? How can you be sure that Jesus really is the Lord of your life? Because really, you're the Lord of your life. Just a question. I mean, that's, that's, that's a hard <laughs> application. That's a hard question because we know and we recognize that uh, authority can be abused. And that that really has happened. And that the church is full of sinful, imperfect people. And so that's why, you know, what I say, what any teacher says, you want to measure up uh, against the word of God. But the question is, have you ever had your mind changed by someone? Has God ever used someone to show you something in God's word that you didn't already see? Or to correct you in some way that you weren't sensitive to before? If so, praise the Lord, then you belong to his church. You're part of his bride. And if no one's ever let you in, if no one's ever opened the door for you and said, welcome into the kingdom of God, come and belong to Jesus and be a part of his people, I just want to say, I'm saying that right now. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe that he died for you, that his death on the cross paid the penalty for your sin and that he was raised to life for your justification, to make you holy, to make you righteous. I would love to invite you to come. And if you've never said that before to anyone, if you've never prayed about that before with anyone, if you've never you know, publicly said, this is what I really believe, I want to invite you after the service, Bill Hatcher um, and I will be up front and we'd love to pray with you. If, if no one's ever said no to you before and you've got something you want to pray about there, again, we'd love to pray with you. We've seen that the invisible church has this kind of earthly role of exercising God's authority, but we have to ask the question, right? Who's actually holding this whole project up? How can we trust that God hasn't entrusted a really, part of his plan, a really important part of his plan to a group of totally incompetent people? who are just going to abuse the king's authority on the earth and screw it all up. Because if we're honest, we can see that individual churches, people, whole denominations, they've missed the mark. They've condoned racism and oppression and immorality. And they've shut the door to heaven in people's faces. And so with all the disagreement among different denominations and, and, and different uh, groups of people over history, how can we trust that this project won't collapse under the weight of its own responsibility? And the answer is that the true church will stand because it rests on the king's foundation. And this enduring community was not designed to hold itself up. It is held up by something. So I want to ask the question, what is holding the church up? What is the church built upon? And the answer to that question in this passage has caused more controversy over the last 500 years than just about any verse in the Bible. 
And so briefly, I, I, I just want to just kind of run through what people say about what the church is actually held up by. Who's actually holding up uh, the church? All that controversy really centers around this one verse, verse 18. So let's read it. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay. The question is, who is the rock that Jesus is talking about that his church is built upon? The Roman Catholic Church would say, and they really only started saying this around 1500. Uh, Augustine didn't believe this. The church fathers didn't believe this. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church believes that the rock that Jesus is building his church on is Peter the person. Uh, and this verse gives Peter the person special authority in the church. And because Peter was in charge of the church in Rome, supposedly, anyone who follows after him also has that supreme authority. And also, by the way, they're infallible. They can't make mistakes. And they are the pope. Um, okay, that's that one view. The other interpretation that, that Protestants and Eastern Orthodox people, everyone else in the church uh, believes, and also the Roman Catholic Church before 1500 believed, uh, that the rock upon which Jesus is building his church isn't Peter the person, but it's Peter the professor or Peter the preacher. It's Peter's confession. That's the thing. That's the rock. Peter's preaching is the rock that the church will be built upon. And they would cite Acts 2 which is Peter's first big sermon at the beginning of the history of the church as this evidence that yeah, Peter's preaching ministry, uh, the public preaching ministry of the church is the thing that actually has built the church and that the church was kind of foundationally started on. And most people would also acknowledge that Peter has a kind of special role among the apostles, uh, that he's kind of the first among equals. Okay, so what do I think? And again, this is what I think. And I, I'm going to try to say what I think in terms of what I think the Bible teaches. I definitely don't agree with the idea that Peter's the Pope. Uh, because you have to twist the text a, quite a bit to come up with the conclusion that he's infallible and that this infallible authority to not make mistakes when you're teaching somehow gets passed on uh, from generation to generation and that it's centered around the church in Rome. Okay? Because Rome was where Caesar lived at that time. No one even think about Rome. So I'm kind of leaning towards the second view, but I want to share something that I read in a commentary that I think is helpful and actually clarifies that second view. Uh, it's a slight modification of the idea that Peter's preaching is the rock, but I think it fits even better with the text and also with the rest of the Bible. Uh, and if that's not exactly what the passage is saying, then that's, that, that's fine and you'll have to forgive me. But I think it's what the rest of the Bible is saying. Um, I think Jesus when he's talking about building his church on the rock, he's not just pointing to Peter's preaching. He's pointing to the one to whom Peter's preaching points, namely himself. Jesus is actually saying, you're Peter, but I'm the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the reason I, I, I think this is because, A, I think it fits with the context because you see how shaky Peter is. I mean, Peter, we, he, he's denying the, the fact that, that Jesus is going to be crucified and, and Jesus has to be rebuked. Not only that, in verse 17, Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. 
hey, your confession, your recognition of me is actually resting on something other than yourself, someone greater than yourself, namely God. So he's saying, Peter, I know you don't really fully understand, and I know that the understanding even you have was given to you by God, and I know you're going to make mistakes, but I will support you, and I will hold you up. This means that our correct confession of Christ is an utter miracle. It's a work of God's grace. The church stays on course and will stay on course throughout time because, not because she's so stable, not because she's so strong, She's full of shaky and fallible people like me, like the leadership of our church. They would acknowledge that. We're trying to be obedient, but we're, 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 we're being worked on by God and being constantly corrected by him. Not because uh, the church is full of these strong people like Peter, but because it's resting on a strong person, namely Jesus Christ. And this is really what the early church said. If you, if you look at the rest of the New Testament letters, this is what Paul writes. He said in Ephesians 2 that the church is built on the foundation, yes, of the apostles and prophets, but under that is Christ Jesus, the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the rock, the stone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you the church, you're being built together into a dwelling place for God. And even Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, Jesus, Jesus is a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he's a chosen and a precious stone. And then you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone. Not Peter, I'm laying Jesus, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, in Jesus, will not be put to shame. So why shouldn't we give up on the church? The reason we shouldn't give up on the church is because when we come to Jesus, we're resting on his foundation. The church, Jesus has promised to uphold, and he's not just holding on to individual people, You rest on him and he rests you together and builds you together with the community. And he's calling us as we believe in him, as we join to Christ, to join to his church and to build her together into something that's beautiful. He hasn't abandoned the church, even though it's full of sinners. And because he has promised never to leave or forsake her, we shouldn't leave or forsake her either. A Christian or a church will stand or fall not because it stands on itself, not just because it stands on tradition, but because it stands on Jesus. Our work as a church is to rest upon him and to let him work in us and through us to make us into who we are called to be. There's this beautiful um, kind of final glimpse that we get of the church in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. And she is called the holy city of God, the holy people of God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband on her wedding day. I mean, what does a bride look like on her wedding day? Beautiful, done up. I mean, like absolutely magnificent, radiant. That's the picture of the church at the end of time. That's what God is building his church into. 
That's what it says in Ephesians, that, that Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The church right now has spots, wrinkles, blemishes, just like we have spots and wrinkles and blemishes. But God is perfecting his church. God is holding up his church. God is sanctifying his church. And one day, God will make his church into something that if we could see it now, we would absolutely be flabbergasted. We'd be speechless. And so what I want to encourage us to do is to do what I try to do every time I'm at a wedding now. Because I've had the privilege of doing a couple weddings. Um, I have this incredible view of the bride as she's coming down the aisle. But I actually think the best seat in the house, the best view of the bride is through the eyes of the groom. If you can stand next to the groom and watch the groom as he watches his bride, it is absolutely breathtaking. When Jesse and Morgan got married, that's what I did. Everyone was turned around and I was like, no, I'm checking out Jesse. Morgan, no offense because you looked lovely. But at that moment, Jesse had eyes for no one else in the entire world except his bride. And he said, she is mine. And oh, I love her. And oh, she's delightful. And oh, I'm, I'm so glad that I belong to her and she belongs to me. Jesus is looking at his church and he is saying, she's my bride. She's my people. I've called her to myself. I'm committed to her. I will not leave her. I will not forsake her. And I've promised to make her spotless, holy, without blemish. Don't you want to be loved like that? You can't be loved like that unless you belong to the bride. Unless you're a member of the body of Christ. Don't you want to be connected to that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have promised never to leave us or forsake us. We thank you that you've given us your gospel. That you've declared your love to sinners. And that you've made a way for people who were not a part of God's people to become part of God's people. For us to be grafted in, for us to be included. And it's through faith in you. So Father, I pray for anyone in this, this room, Lord, who, who you have not yet called to yourself, that you would call them that you'd invite them to come and believe and rest their life on the foundation of Christ, the cornerstone. And that you would hold not only them up, but you would hold up your entire church so that they would not be shaken. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.